Squires live at the Pratt series. And tonight we're very proud to host one of this country's foremost political journalists, Michael Kinsley. I think that deserves a hand. Necessarily, the honored model these days to be um, 
provocative and thoughtful in the way that uh, both Michael Kinsley and, and Frank Four are. Uh, much more the model, of course, to try to find some uh, spectacular gimmick. Not that they don't have gimmicks, I don't, I don't mean it that way, but to find some way to be outrageous, to, to uh, offend people uh, without necessarily, I mean, I, I, I fully believe that it is the job of journalists to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, but that we're, we're far from that uh, as the honored model today. It's, it's really a matter of how to attract attention to oneself, say something outrageous, uh, make a claim that's plausible and then hope it will turn out to be true, and, uh, and then by above all, try to go with the consensus. And uh, I think that I feel proud uh, to buck the consensus from time to time myself and to be in the presence of people who certainly don't hesitate to uh, resist the consensus and to uh, analyze things as they really feel and seem to be and to tell, call them as they see them. So you're in for a treat and uh, it's, a, it's uh, a wonderful and clever thing for the Pratt to bring Frank Four and uh, Michael Kinsley together. You probably know a lot about their backgrounds. Frank Four is, is from this remarkable family in Washington whom I know because um, my children went to the same school that uh, he and his brothers uh, attended in D.C. And uh, I just, when I was, uh, when my children were very young, I would occasionally drop into a high school graduation of that school, Georgetown Day School, and uh, there would turn out to be another four uh, graduating at, at that point, and uh, each one uh, as distinguished as the others, and uh, a very, a very interesting uh, parade of brothers who, who uh, uh, set quite a wonderful tradition. Uh, Frank has worked uh, for other people, but is now running the New Republic, and as I think you know, the New Republic has had many incarnations, has a great tradition, and uh, if it's going to survive, it will survive, uh, more likely survive, and I'm not suggesting I doubt its survival, but uh, returning to my original theme, it will survive all the better under the leadership of uh, Frank Ford. Now, Michael Kinsley uh, is well known to all of you. He is... Um, uh, I would say one of the people we can count on to be outrageous because he speaks his mind and, uh, uh, and analyzes things in a way that I think Michael's always had this capacity to say things that we were all thinking but hadn't yet managed to express them in that way. And uh, that's, that's one of his, his great contributions. He has written a brilliant column. He uh, worked for a pretty good college newspaper uh, along the way, which I worked for as well, um, several years ahead of him, and uh, he has he has really uh, distinguished himself uh, not only as a host on Crossfire, but uh, since then uh, doing some wonderful things with Slate and uh, um, other publications. You may not remember he has edited Harper's Magazine. He has had uh, quite a few extremely desirable jobs, but none better, I suspect than writing and speaking his mind and, and writing his pieces. So uh, on behalf of the Pratt Library, uh, I hope you'll join me in welcoming these two very distinguished commentators this evening. Um, 
I've I've known you I've known you since I, I graduated for college. You were my you were my first boss at at yes. Microsoft. Among, among the other <laughs> publications that Sandy mentioned is Slate, where Frank got his start. And if you really want to feel old, think think about someone who was an intern at a publication which you ran and is now editor of the New Republic. <laughs> Well, it was it was a it was a, a hell of a time to be at Microsoft. I mean, there was a, before there was the Bush administration as kind of a source of as the center of all evil in the world. There was Microsoft, which was viewed in the same sort of way as this 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 empire that was about to encro- stick its tentacles in every aspect of human life. And I think that when I arrived, it was kind of the the height of both the, Microsoft's power and the the loathing of Microsoft. Um, uh, why? And we were we worked in a campus that Microsoft had built specifically for its new media empire. Um, and uh, there was a magazine called Underwire that was going to be their their female magazine. There was si- there was Sidewalk, which was going to be destroy the city papers of the world. Uh, but Slate was the one part of the Microsoft media empire that actually survived. The rest disappeared into into the ether, more or less. Why, why, why was Slate able to survive in these other... Well, um, these, um, well, I guess it, that's a good question, Frank. Um, number one was we spent very little money. And, and, uh, Don't I know it? <laughs> yeah. And, and that was key, you know, yeah. in, not just at Microsoft. But over the years since Slate started, um, oh my gosh, Talk, Tina Brown's magazine went through mm-hmm. 40 or 50 million in, in two or three years. There was Brill's content. Um, there were also there was the Kurt Anderson one. What was that called? Uh, it, it was a it, they went through fifty million in a year. Right. Salon went through ninety million, I think, over the course of a decade, and we stayed lean. And I think that was a help because Microsoft just wouldn't have saved that much by shutting us down. <laughs> and, and and then the other thing was we had a good idea. And we had really good people. And um, I think, you know, it was a case of quality out being <laughs> well, paying off. Sandy raised some questions about the future of media. Um, but before, before we talk about media more generally, I think we should talk about, you know, we're here, we're here today because of your, your new book, Please Don't Remain Calm. I think we should talk about that. Um, and, I, and I promised you that I would just ask uh, puff, puff questions. Yes. Um, but there's one, there's one question, uh, a difficult question I have to ask you, uh, which is, um, I've known, as I've known you for a long time, I know that you have a very idiosyncratic idea about uh, a notion about books. That is, that you don't think that they're, that they're especially... Well, you don't read books. Well, I, that's not true. All right, I'm putting that too strongly. Yes. I'm putting it provocatively. You, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't see why people write as many books as they do. Yeah. And so why did I 
bring this. Well, well, first, maybe if you could before I, before we get to that point, maybe you could just uh, describe your 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 kind of your your attitude towards towards books. Well, um, in part, it's that um, the typical book is written by someone who has a thesis. That the nonfiction book, especially the Washington nonfiction book, written by a journalist, is very often the motivation is more a desire to have written a book than the desire to write the book. And they spend every weekend, you know, for two or three years or more, ignoring their children, infuriating <laughs> their spouses, just to get this book out. And then it, it, it basically, its message is conveyed through the reviews, because many more people read the reviews than ever read the book. So I used to always tell people, cut out the middleman, <laughs> write the review, or, or in, in other words, write an article that expresses the thesis. Well, you conducted a famous experiment once. Yes, and it was, um, it was with um, David Bell, who's now a professor here at Hopkins. But he, like so many people with fancy grown-up jobs, was at one point an intern at the New Republic. And David Bell and I took, um, this was so long ago that there weren't even post-it notes, but we took something like that and stuck them about two-thirds of the way through a, through a bunch of books at Olson's, which is a bookstore in DuPont Circle. And it said, if you see this, call me, Mike Kinsley, and I'll give you $5. <laughs> and nobody called. <laughs> and then my other experience, which I retail in this book, is I got a call asking me if I wanted to be a judge in the National Book Awards nonfiction category. And I told them, well, I'm sort of on record as disapproving of books. <laughs> And, and they said they didn't care. And so, um, you know, I said, great. And it was mainly ego and partly this vision of getting all these free books. But then they started to pour in. There were 402, and you were supposed to read them all. So I wrote a piece after the awards had been given out saying that I hadn't actually read every one of the 402 books cover to cover. And, you know, I thought that was reasonably obvious. I didn't think anyone, I'm sure no one did. But there was this huge fuss. Book people can really, Sandy can confirm this, Book people know how to stage a fuss <laughs> better better than almost anybody. So there was this huge fuss that 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 because I had admitted what everybody <laughs> actually knew, which is that they don't read 402 books. <laughs> there was one of the judges who, when we had our meetings gave every, she was like, 
she was like the smart girl who does the extra credit <laughs> in, in for math class and and she oh she she used to say things like she i'm almost done with the uh, with the melville biography which was <laughs> like this and 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 she said she'd also read this was the second volume which was up for the award. She said, and she's reread the first volume. <laughs> That's the old academic joke. No one says you don't say read; you always say reread. Um, and and we said, how is this possible? And she said she did it on the stairmaster. <laughs> and then when when I saw her finally in New York because everything else was done on the phone. I tend that she was very fit. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I know, I, know, I mean, I, as a reader, I'm, I'm grateful uh, that you, uh, you put all this stuff together between, between two covers. Uh, I, I have, uh, I keep, uh, I, now I'm just going to, I'm going to exude the type of sentiment that you probably, you, you, don't, you don't like so much, but, I keep big babies by my desk, and I. And I oh, look at I all. don't mind that. Yeah. I, I, I would be disingenuous if I said I kept your book about satellites by my desk. Yeah. But um, what, why did you decide to uh, to to put put all these columns between two hardcovers, uh, given, given your your notorious attitude towards books? Well, I can summarize it in one word: vanity. <laughs> and and also, I'm not adding to the total amount of nonfiction in the world <laughs> since it's all reprints. I knew you would have a, a, a very calibrated, perfectly thought through, extremely logical answer to that um, to that question. What do you, what do you make of? Um, do you, do you agree with with Sandy's assumption that? Um, are you one of the people in the room who think that print, me- it, it, print journalism should survive? Well, um, actually, Sandy, um, I, well, should is, is, is a question, then will is another question. I do not think that 10 years from now there will be newspapers sold, or certainly not very many, on paper. And the the whole business of chopping down the trees. And have you ever seen a roll of newsprint? That's the paper, not the ink. It's enormous. And there are trucks carting them hither and thither. And the clanking of the printing presses, which is quite thrilling. But it's basically, you know, the first industrial revolution, whereas we're almost through with the second. Um, I think that just will not make sense. But the question, the question is, what we call, what people will get. I think they'll get it in some form electronically. Will it basically be like the newspapers of today, just on, in, just, you know, read in a different way, or will it be something that is fundamentally different? And I've come to think that even that is true, that, that, that it will, that, I mean, I didn't come to this easily, but I think the medium does impose 
its strengths and weaknesses on, on the content. And I think that, um, you know, it's all the cliches. It's just that I, I've come to believe that they're true, that newspapers are an us-to-you medium and the Internet is a more of an us-to-us medium. And so, that, you know, and that there will be more readers. The difference between the readers and the writers will fade a bit. And, you know, with blogs and everything, it'll be more communal. And there will be fewer well-paying jobs for, for <laughs> journalists. And um, what will actually emerge, I don't know. But I do think it will be different, not just in the medium, not just in what it's printed on, but in its content. Well, how about the um, part of, of, of journalism that's most uh, specific to the type of brand that you practice, the column? You, does the column, is the column um, going the way of the dodo bird? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, if you look in this country, there are now um, three or four people at the New York Times and one or two at the Washington Post who are paid to produce mm -hmm. a column in the old-fashioned Walter Littman sense about national issues. And that's it. I ran the opinion section of the L.A. Times for, for a brief year, <laughs> and there were none there. And people are not... New, there's so much opinion out there for free that, you know, this is just markets working as they're supposed to. No one's going to pay, certainly, what George Will makes now in the future for a column. You have a very funny uh, column that's uh, uh, printed in the book about how... How much will you give me for it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, apparently, uh, $25.95. Mm. Um, uh, but, but arguing that... It, it, well, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's jokingly arguing that opinion journalists need to band together and form... You had, you had some uh, moniker for it, opinion... Writers League. Oh, the Opinion League of America. That's the one. Yeah, that was that's a long-standing joke. Actually, it goes back to when I was at the New Republic. That there were, there was the, there was a union, and then there was this league, and and you know, like in many fields, the old split between uh -huh. the FL and the CIO, um, <laughs> and this was all applied to opinion. Opinion people. Um, do you do you read blogs? Um, yeah, but I'm. I'm how many can right. you read? It's a good question. Well, you, we you, at Slate. At Slate, when I was at Slate, I think we uh, we uh, Mickey Cows invented pretty yeah. much the the one of the first blogs. I don't know if the, yeah, I think so too. We didn't use the term right blog, but chatterbox. Yes, and it was it was the first sort of internet. Um, we had to deal. We went through all sorts of trauma over would we let writers just go post their stuff, 
you know, or would Microsoft find itself getting sued for some 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 Michigas that Nikki came up with in the middle of the night? <laughs> so you decided the safe option is give our craziest writer complete open access to the means of production and yeah. just let him go crazy. Well, it, it, it's, it established a floor for everybody. <laughs> and, and he now writes some Cows Files, it's called, which is a very good blog. Um, he had, there are certain people have the mentality for blogs. Mickey is one. You're, I don't know what he is now, Marty Parrots, who, of the New Republic, is, has a blogger's mentality sort of obsessive-compulsive disorder uh, combined with extremely limited um, um, attention span. Right. <laughs> it's the one medium where to have a tangential mind works. It's, it's, it's a necessity. You, you tried blogging for a brief period of time. Well, I, I mean, at Slate, I did the breakfast table several times. Which At time, have you? Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry getting, to bring that up. I'm getting to that. <laughs> um, uh, that was um, the idea was that you would, if you you would get to eavesdrop on the breakfast conversation of two interesting people who were who were um, reading the newspapers, and we had some great ones. Um, Ariana Huffington, we introduced her to the internet, and she now owns it. <laughs> and then uh, about a year ago, um, yeah, I, I blogged a bit at Time, and, and it, it reminded me that when we started Slate, we, um, we had people, you know, blogging, writing the breakfast table or a diary or something, and very often, the idea, you, we had to post it for them. It was very early in the technology. So they would send in a piece on, their first piece on a Monday. And we'd post it Monday night. Then Tuesday morning, they'd call up and say, I quit. I can't go on. Because they would read what people were saying about them in the bulletin boards. And, and, and finally, we had to tell people, don't read anything in the bulletin boards until the end of the week, because otherwise you'll quit. And, and, and I had sort of forgotten that. But then I, I wrote for, it was about the attorney general, you know, the, the, uh, the um, yeah, the, the, the federal prosecutors who got fired by Bush, and I wrote something not, gosh, not, not saying that Bush was completely innocent, just suggesting that it might be a little bit more complicated. For example, Clinton had fired all of them, where, you know, and there was an argument that it's worse to fire them selectively than to fire all of them. But it seemed to me that this is the kind of thing you discuss in a civil tone. And that was not how it seemed to some of these people who had read it in, in time. Right. Well, even, even, even some of the columns in this book have ignited that kind of uh, controversy. Uh, 
uh, I was I had forgotten about uh, uh, your 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 Bill O'Reilly spat, and I'd especially forgotten about uh, the, the 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 goonish threats that he uh, he made to you. Yeah, um, he said um, that uh, he he hoped that one day terrorists would come to my little house. He's obsessed with the size of houses. And that we had originally gotten into an argument about whether he was middle class or not. He's, he felt that he was a working class stiff because he'd grown up in Levittown. And, and he said that people walked out of parties when he walked in because they didn't want to hang around <laughs> with someone from Levittown. And, you know, Levittown is not, um, well, it's not on the wire. <laughs> um, so he says he hopes that someday... Um, Terrorists will come to my little house and saw my head off. And, and when this happens, maybe my last words will be, maybe Bill O'Reilly was right. And I don't remember even what I, he was supposed to be right about. I'm sure those will be your last words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so just to return, do you... Do you if if opinion if the column if the column is is not going to be with us uh, in in a very short period of time, are you are you going to start blogging or are you? Um, uh, well, I don't know. I think it will see me out, um, and maybe you. But but not, <laughs> that's good. I was sweating that for a little. Yeah, but um, you know, I. I mean, the reason I'm in journalism is I sort of discovered this kind of writing in the New Statesman when I lived in England after college and then later in The Spectator. And, you know, I'm an Anglophile in all the usual pathetic ways. <laughs> but this really, this is a good kind of Anglophilia. And, but I think that, you know, it's sort of, page after page of essentially columns like TRB, about 1,200 words, mm -hmm. highly opinionated, witty, if you can pull it off. And, you know, I thought, this is my medium. Mm -hmm. But it's, it may be going. Gulp. Um, you know, hypocrisy has always been... Um, has always been this this cardinal sin in 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 in, in Kinsley columns that uh, it's it's been the thing that you've you've always been masterful at stripping away from people. Why? What is it about hypocrisy that uh, that bothers you so much? It, it's hypocritical. <laughs> <laughs> um, I you know I I don't know. I guess it's because you know I live in a world of words. And, and, and politicians, you know, make promises and take positions, and they ought to have their act together. And, and it, I, I don't know, maybe, am I alone in thinking that, well, for example, 
in this book. I was talking earlier with someone about this. Um, there's a piece about um, how in 1992, the Republicans made this huge deal about Hillary Clinton um, wanting children to be able to sue their parents. This was because of something she'd written in law school years before. And she didn't really say that. It was absurd. But at the Republican convention, they went on and on about how Republicans believe that parents are responsible for their children and they shouldn't be trampled by the government, et cetera, et cetera. Then, a little while later, came Elian Gonzalez, if you remember that, which was an obsession of Republicans for a while. He was this kid whose mother had died trying to bring him over from Cuba, and his father was still in Cuba and wanted his son back. And lo and behold, you know, the Republicans are suddenly saying, well, Elion, little Elion has legal rights, you know, and that really bothers me. I think the only way you can test, not the only way, but one way you test what, what your own positions are is, do they fit with your positions on other issues and positions you've taken before? And if they don't, I think you should rethink them. Um, but one could argue that, that hypocrisy, a lot of these slips and a lot of the, the coherence is, uh, that you're, you're, you're asking for and, and politicians and human beings is, is not something that human beings do, do naturally. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm asking, uh, do you, I mean, is there, is there a way in which... Uh, well, you know, it's, you know, there was the apple and the snake. Yes, there's original sin. Right. But so in that sense, you know, there are all sorts of modes of human behavior which right. I approve of and you do too, which don't <laughs> come naturally. Right. But we can work on it, Frank. <laughs> Um, well, the corollary to uh, the corollary to, to uh, uh, hypocrisy is that it often comes in preening, self-righteous, moralizing uh, form. And uh, two two uh, two people who pop up as villains in your in in, in your your uh, writings from this period are uh, John McCain and Joe Lieberman. Um, and I was. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was. Uh, I think Democrats maybe we should go back and, and mind some of your 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 columns from the 2000 race, where you really you really just don't like uh, McCain. There's something about him that um, actually I, I I do sort of like him. I think as a person, I I would just assume he not be president. Um, and it's Lieberman who has always driven me around the band. He, he, he's, he's, um, he's, well, he's preachy, I guess, <laughs> in a nutshell. And, and um, I don't know what else to say. Well, with McCain, it seems like um, one of the things that you, 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 you criticize him for is the way that he deploys 
honor as as a as a, as a trump card and honor is central to is the way that he views the world yes and he also uses it as a shortcut in a lot in foreign policy he will he tends to say when clinton was president he 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 put himself in a sort of a no-lose position by saying that he supported Clinton's military interventions because it was a point of honor for the United States to finish what it had started, but he would never have started it. So he sort of wins both <laughs> ways. And the question of, of, you know, well, what should our foreign policy be you really can't tell. Honor is not going to give us a foreign policy. Right. <laughs> well, in one of one of the prefaces to you, you preface uh, your your review of David Brooks's book uh, on Paradise by saying that you thought you'd given David Brooks a mixed review, but your wife thought that you'd been hard, you, you you you'd you'd given the basically a very harsh review. And I think the same is true with McCain. You say you're you kind of like the guy, but uh, I read in <laughs> I'm listening to you now and I and I read in the book uh in, the, in your column you 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 describe uh how he uses his time in uh, a Vietnamese prison camp as a rhetorical get out of free jail card that he bludgeons pe- his opponents with uh you 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 basically describe him as as a hypocrite. Well, you um you don't think that's a mild <laughs> Well, um you're right. I guess you're right. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, score one for me. Um, uh, I've been I've been dying to know what you think of of Obama, uh, just because I think you could you could plausibly argue uh, I'm I, I like Obama and Obama supporter, but I think you could also argue that there's a lot of moralism and self-righteousness if not with Obama then the whole the whole Obama mania and I was wondering how uh, that that wears with you um well I'm for Obama for whatever that's worth and I but I don't sense a lot of self-righteous moralism in his campaign in fact what I sense and what I like is what got him into trouble in Pennsylvania. It's the Harvard Law School analytical, um, we can get smart people to solve this problem um, aspect of of, of him and his support that appeals to me. Um, And I reckon, you know, I guess that's elitist. But Margaret Carlson had a very good column in um, Bloomberg where she said, you know, for heaven's sake, maybe you don't always want the smartest guy in class, you know, to, to win the election. But surely you want to be open to the possibility that <laughs> someone shouldn't be eliminated because right. they're the smartest guy in the class. <laughs> you know? And so... Really, the the argument that I I I I was feeling well that Obama had really um, he'd created some magic that you know and it's not entirely him 
and it's not even entirely justified. It's very unfortunate and unfair to Hillary Clinton, who was supposed to be the force of history, yeah. and through this accident is suddenly the force against history. But whatever the reason, this would be a chance for America to do something exciting and to, to, to salvage our reputation around the world after Bush, all these reasons. But, you know, it, I felt, I, if it's Hillary, that's fine. Either one would be great. And I felt a little sorry for her, and I felt that a lot of the criticism she was getting was unfair. Some of it was sexist. But she lost me in the Pennsylvania primary because I think that really the worst thing about this whole election is the competitive umbrage. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's sort of all when you think of the of, of, of what's going on in this country and the challenges we're going to face, the idea that basically what we've been arguing about is I'm terribly offended by what you said. And even though I'm actually delighted by it, and the only reason I even know about it is I hired a bunch of people to comb through the archives looking for something to get offended about. And, and, and when, when she starts carrying on about how Obama is elitist, yeah. you know, I suppose it's a, it's a milestone in our country where a black man can be accused of elitism, <laughs> you know, and, and there's some plausibility to it. But the idea that Hillary Clinton is offended and, and, and that, I mean, and the, the whole, and it just didn't seem to me like, a, like such an awful remark. <laughs> no, go ahead. Well, <laughs> I th All right. No. Who said that? Go ahead. Especially when it was true. It was true of Obama? No, when he said. Oh, it was. His statement about a small. What his description of yeah. business was true? Well, you know, the, the other thing that bothers me about that is, is um, and actually this is what the O'Reilly piece in the book is about, is reverse snobbery yeah. is the only form of snobbery that really has power in this country. So everybody, I mean, Hillary Clinton suddenly has her grandfather. <laughs> you know, it's like Brits, you know, saying my grandfather was a lord. In America, you have people saying my grandfather worked in the steel mills, you know. and they It's have, really, it's an amazing accomplishment how she went from being somebody who is widely denounced as a 60s radical and a feminist to becoming this great defender of the white working class. and mm, Yeah, well, so I'm, I mean, all my relatives are from a small town in Pennsylvania, <laughs> but I don't go around bragging about it. <laughs> um. And I have to say, my mother couldn't wait to get out. 
Um, that's why you've transcended your bitterness. Um, do you think that she's gotten... Do you think that she's... she's the, the criticism of Hillary Clinton is that she's crossed all these boundaries in the course of this campaign, that she's been too negative. I have a hard time imagining you being too much of a prig about negative campaigning. Well, um... Why? (laughs) Well, there's nothing wrong with negative campaigning. What's wrong is dishonest campaigning. And that, and you have to define dishonest broadly to include disingenuous. Mm -hmm. And I think, certainly in Pennsylvania and since Pennsylvania, her campaign has just been deeply disingenuous. And and I really don't like that. Um, how much how much hope do you do you uh, do you invest in Obama as being? Do you think that he's he, he could be a uh, he's a he, he could be a transformational president or how much how how, how high are your hopes well, for the guy? Well, you know, I I've been through the same cycle as everyone. A couple of months ago, I was just so excited. The, the, that I, I was about to burst. And, you know, um, I've come down to earth. Um, I still think it would be great, and I think, you know, he's, he's, he's I, I'm going to vote with enthusiasm, which is not a, it's not a familiar experience. <laughs> um, but... You know, inevitably, you know, the media have, have, have chewed him up a little yeah. bit, and he's got feet of clay. And so what are you going to do? Um, when, when you started, you, you started at the, the, the Washington Monthly, and uh, uh, you, were, you were identified as being part of this, uh, this, this kind of movement that was criticizing um, the stupidity of a lot of of, of 60s liberalism. Um, it was called, a movement called neoliberalism. Um, do you do you still do you think that there is such a uh, do you still identify yourself as being part of do you well maybe you never identified as being part of any specific strain of liberalism. Well, um, neoliberalism means a lot of different things. It basically, you know, there was neoconservatism came first, and that has a very precise coloration mm-hmm. and membership. If not, you can quarrel about the meaning. And, you know, so people thought, well, if they have neoconservatives, we're going to have neoliberals. And several different elements among liberals sort of claim that phrase. Um, I come from the, the Charlie Peters Washington Monthly School, um, as you said, which, um, which basically felt that, that liberals needed to re-examine um, the institutions and the uh, and some of the um, some of the sub developments mm-hmm. of its core values, but it didn't need. But well, but the core values were sound. Um, 
I sort of felt that job got done, yeah. you know, around 1980. And since then, I mean, you know, when Charlie Peter started the Washington Monthly, it just looked like Democrats were going to be president and control both houses of Congress and the Supreme Court forever. So if in that case, you know, you could write a piece saying, saying that liberal, well, the joke's, Busting your mental blocks was the standing joke at the Washington Monthly about this, that, or the other aspect of of liberal democracy. But you know, it seemed to me around 1980 that the most pressing job of liberals wasn't self-criticism, but it was um, criticism of, of 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 the other side. And that was about when I started um, my adult life. And so I've been, I've been doing more of that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, our mutual friend, Mickey Kaus. Well, that was, I, was, I, was, I had him in he, mind when I was... Uh, he, he's, still, he's still bashing our mental blocks. Right. You know, and there does, when you've been doing it for four, when you've been saying, I'm a liberal dissident, for four decades, you reach a point where you're sort of not a liberal anymore. <laughs> and, and Mickey gets accused, I think, with some justification of having passed that point about 1988, I would say. <laughs> um, what do you, I guess in the course of this campaign, a lot of liberals have gone back and they started to reconsider the Clinton administration in light of this this campaign? I think there was a lot of maybe latent frustration with the Clinton administration that, that a lot of liberals didn't realize that they had until this campaign, uh, you, you, where it seems like maybe her, some of the things that she's done to Obama have made some liberals say, well, maybe the conservatives were right about, about the Clintons. Maybe they are, they are entitled, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how do you how do you how do you think of uh, the Clinton administration? Do you think that it was a a good presidency, uh, a disappointment? Oh well, I think your analysis is right. That you know, around Super Tuesday, suddenly you know Hillary became the Clintons, and and, <laughs> and everybody. Um, suddenly remembered everything they didn't like about the Clinton administration. My memory is that nobody liked the Clinton administration. I mean, I didn't, in Washington, and it was one of the few things that were really eye-openers when I moved out to Seattle to see that, that there were people who really admired Clinton, were enthusiastic about Clinton, in Washington, I mean, the, the honeymoon lasted about a week. And then he took up gays in the military, and, and everybody was unhappy for different reasons. And I didn't know anyone in Washington who was truly enthusiastic about the Clintons. You know, they might be members of the administration, or they might be in favor of its agenda. But, you know, you didn't run into people who weren't employed by 
the Clinton administration who really were enthusiastic. But in the rest of the country, you did. But to return to your point, um, I'm a little suspicious of people who suddenly say, well, I've had it with Clinton. Well, when, when, when was it that they, that they hadn't? <laughs> right. What, what's the psychology of um, Clinton hatred? Why, why do you think it's, I mean, do you think that, that there's something deserved there? Or do you think that, uh, that there's some sort of psychodrama playing out between the, 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 the liberals and, who hate them and... and well, um, there, there's certainly a psychodrama going on. It is an amazing story. Um, you know, if, if, if she becomes president, or even if she doesn't. Um, and, and, you know, our, our mutual friend Jacob Weisberg has a book out about the Bushes. But, you know, the Clintons can really... Um, they can be even more Shakespearean. Um, but, you know. Uh, I just wanted to ask you some questions about, about, about the actual process of writing um, and whether uh, you know, your columns read as if, as if, I mean, as if it, it just, that you write, you're, 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 you're an easy writer. Uh, do, do, you, do you labor over... Over comms, I remember <clears throat> walking into Slate one 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 morning, uh, where I was I was yeah, you know I was, I was a very young writer and I was slaving over a piece that was taking me uh, days to write a a, a, a paragraph, uh, and then you were you you'd walked in at seven thirty in the morning because you had a you know nine thirty deadline for uh, <laughs> Time Magazine. This may have been an aberration. <laughs> Uh, but is, is writing, is it? No, it's hard. Yeah. God, it's well, you, uh, hard. Well, uh, granted, granted, it looked like you could, you could tell that your hair was puffed up and that there were signs of stress on your face. I'm not saying that it wasn't easy, but. Well, um, I, don't, I don't know whether to be flattered or insulted, so I'll choose to be, <laughs> I'll choose to be flattered that my writing seems like it just sort of comes out. But it doesn't. Um, I will say this. There's a negative correlation between the success of a... Of a you probably found this true. Between the success of a piece of writing and how hard it was to write. They're all hard. But, you know, the, 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 the ones that really take off are the easier, the easier ones. Right. And then, how the hell do you write without ever without ever writing a cliche? That's like, reading 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 these columns together. The thing that struck me was that I, I I could I went I went the whole book without finding a cliche. Oh well, that's very nice. I bet I could find a few. But you know, <laughs> you take. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure I write um, um, a lot of them in the first draft. Right. Yeah, but you can go, you know, if you, you, you just, um, thank you, because that's one of the things that's important to me. But, you know, you, you reread it and you spot them and you take them out. Um, wh- why have you always, why, 
why 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 have you stuck with the the, the column as your 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 your, your form? Um, I mean, you've written some great longer essays. The piece in the New Yorker the other week was was uh, uh, poignant and funny, and um, but it, it you know the column seems to be the thing that you. Well, I think you know everybody's got their their length, and mine is about twelve hundred words. Um, you know, and some people. I mean, I don't know how people write real books. Do you, do you think you ever will? Um, no. I, first of all, I really have nothing to say. Like this piece in the New Yorker, you know, people have said you should turn it into a book, and um, you know, I just have nothing more to say. It really would be a case of wanting to have written a book, and um, so. You know, I twelve. You can say a lot in twelve hundred words. Seven hundred and fifty words is what I get in time. Yeah. And in newspapers, and that's really not enough. But in twelve hundred words, you can take an idea and you can play with it and you can say something. And and um, you never get frustrated that you can't go longer than that, or you at this well, point so trained to write twelve hundred. Um, sure, sure, I get frustrated. And um, one of the great things about the internet is that you know you can go on. At time, they still are ha- in the insane, um, sane days of. Cut three lines. No, wait. Add two lines. You know, because it's all got to fit exactly on a page. At the New Republic... And what's an opinion column without a little bit of art next to it? Yes. And and over the years, you know, the number of read... Every redesign reduces the room for the type and increases the art and the white space because it has to breathe. That's what they always say. But the New Republic is a little better. You know, there's, um, there's some flexibility there. But on the Internet, you know, you can, you can write as long as you want. Although, it's sort of ironic. It has to be short to get people to read it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're supposed to write 1,200 and you write 1,400... There's no crisis. Uh, are you going to have the Jones to, to edit again? Um, sure, if anyone offers me a magazine. Um, Can I have your I was going to say, yeah, they knew that was coming. Um. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a good one. Yeah. What's your, what do you, uh, do, do, you, do you have a preference for, uh, do, do, you, do you consider yourself an editor? When you th- if on your your tombstone, are you are you an editor? Or are you a uh, are you a, a columnist? I, I've actually, you know, it's just not that not, not that I'm I'm rushing you there or wishing this in any sort of way. All I do is I say I want your job, and some of you are talking about my tombstone. You don't know how much that just rattled me. Yeah. When Michael Michael Kinsley says he wants your job, you get a little bit scared. Especially because I've had it twice. <laughs> twice? Is that yeah, all? Yeah. Seems like more. <laughs> um, well, I actually think there are a lot of good writers, but good editors are rarer. So I guess I would say 
that being an editor would be my tombstone of choice. <laughs> um, you, know, it's, you talk about uh, arriving at, uh, at the, the, the New Republic because you took on that job. Uh, how old were you when, you when you were first editor of the New Republic? How old were you? Uh, older than, I was an old man compared to you. I don't think so. I was like 28. I was 30. I was oh. ancient. Well, yeah, so I was 28. Um, and what was, what, was, what was the New Republic like when you uh, first arrived? Well, it had been in a... You know, the New Republic was founded in 1914, and it's, it's gone through regular waves. And it had been... Uh, it was... Um, this Marty Parrots had bought it maybe a year or two before. And the man who had previously owned it, Gilbert Harrison, just died recently. I don't know what's on his tombstone. <laughs> but it was very statesmanlike and responsible and dull. And so there was a great opportunity there to liven it up. And that's what we did. And Marty Parrots was a great owner. Well, that kind of goes, uh, I mean, this is a little bit of a sensitive subject because he's still my boss, but uh, uh, that goes contrary to a lot of the, at least the Hollywood uh, version of the guy. Um, yeah, well, uh, I mean, what can I say? They all say he, he ruined the great publication, but they don't claim that it was great in 1973 or four which is when he took it over. So basically, they're, 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 that's ignorance. Um, when you were... When, I, I just got the, the timeout uh, signal from this. So uh, uh, just as one last question, um, when, you, when you started editing Slate, it was the, a lot of the history of... You know, there, was, there, was, there was somewhat of the DNA of the New Republic that went into the founding of it, but there was also... There were also lessons from from the New Republic, and and you were you were kind of very self consciously trying to create kind of the next a, a, a different kind of uh, opinion opinion magazine, not just in terms of um, not just in terms of the internet and the new technology and and all the things that it, it, it yeah, opened up. But it, it, it was my chance. Well, um, one thing I wanted was a, a back of the book, a literary section that was aimed at, at, at a, a larger population, mm -hmm. uh, basically on a level with the political part, which I wanted it to be accessible to any reasonably intelligent person. And um, sometimes the back of the Book of the New Republic didn't even, wasn't even accessible <laughs> to me. So that, that was, and there were other things like that. I think actually the, 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 the pop cultural part of Slate is probably a pretty significant reason that it has the scale of readership that yeah, it has. Yeah, and I have to say that I never really did as much of that as I intended. But when Jacob Weisberg took it over, now seven years ago, he did do that. And I, I agree with you, that's a major yeah. reason for, for Slate's success. Uh, well, 
people are headed for the exit, so yeah. uh, it's probably time. Yeah, thanks, Hey, Frank. thanks, Mike.